Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to this edition of Bring It On, where a multiple award-winning show celebrating 15 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and in today's broadcast, you'll also hear about news and events of interest to the black community, all this and more in the next hour on Bring It On. But first... State Senator Eddie Melton was born and raised in that great city, Gary, Indiana, as the son of a railroad worker and a proud steelworkers, local 188 union member. His father served in Vietnam, earning a Purple Heart, but returning permanently wounded, giving Eddie a firsthand insight into the challenges veterans face in our society, as well as the cost of untreated physical and mental health on local communities. Since 2005, Senator Melton has been instrumental in establishing and training mentoring organizations around the country. In 2015, he worked with President Barack Obama's administration in implementing My Brother's Keeper, an initiative designed to address persistent opportunity gaps facing boys and young men of color. He has also been recognized as a national leader in the area of youth mentoring. He was elected as state senator for Indiana's 3rd District in November of 2016. In addition to serving in the Indiana General Assembly, Senator Melton serves as the manager of corporate citizen and community relations for the Northern Indiana Public Service Company, otherwise known as NIPSCO. Senator Melton was recently elected by lawmakers from around the country to serve on the executive committee of the National Conference of State Legislators. While a member of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, he also served as a ranking minority member on the Senate Education and Career Development Committee. And in 2017, he was appointed deputy chairman of the Indiana Democratic Party. One important point to mention about State Senator Eddie Melton is he's running for governor of the state of Indiana. He joins us by phone today to introduce himself to our listeners and share his vision on how he intends to lead Indiana as its next governor. Senator Melton, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, welcome you, sir, and, and thank you. And how are things in our and in, in William and my home city up north in Indiana? Yeah, it's great. I've uh, just arrived back into town uh, from a... Uh, a trip to South Carolina, uh, having a robust conversation on criminal justice reform with uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in our conversation, but uh, we did track that, and there were some interesting points brought out. Um, I, I did want to sort of steer the conversation initially just as an introduction of sorts um, to you, um, uh, for you to acquaint yourself with people in our listening um immediate listening area, of course, we stream all over the world, but there's some who may have never met uh, Senator Eddie Melton in person or are just now getting to know him as an individual who's also thrown his hat into the gubernatorial race. So if you want to take a minute, introduce yourself to us, um, 
Uh, you had some very compelling things on your on your website and on your campaign page as far as what were your motivations to seek the highest office in Indiana. Yes. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and I think your your introduction kind of summarized it, but I'll just hit a few points. Um, born and raised in the city of Gary, you know, I had an opportunity to be raised by some hardworking parents uh, that instilled some very core uh, values and and hard work and having faith as well as just making sure that we serve our community. Um, and that's something I hold true today. Uh, my wife, Crystal, we have four children, and that's the type of values you try to instill in them. Um, I've been in the legislature for the last three and a half years, going on four years now, and the, the primary reason I would say that led me to seek running for governor is the simple fact that I feel that Indiana is becoming very stagnant in a variety of issues that matter most to Hoosiers across the entire state. And I don't feel that our current administration and the current governor are addressing the issues of health care, rising cost of medicine, prescription drugs, uh, fully addressing issues in terms of education when it comes down to raising teacher salaries, as well as the over-testing of our students as well as uh, just the overall infrastructure of school buildings that we have across this entire state, and overall funding of traditional public education. These are all issues that are at the core uh, of not only my platform, but just morally that I feel that we have to address as a state. Uh, I launched a statewide tour uh, earlier this summer where as you mentioned, that I serve as ranking minority uh, on the Senate Education Committee right now. Um, so I reached across the aisle like I typically would do, and I asked the current state superintendent of education to join me on this tour. Now, it was not popular to do so because she's a Republican, Dr. Jennifer McCormick. But myself and uh, the people that I work with, we feel and we know that Dr. McCormick has the best interest of children, best interest of teachers, and schools across the state. And I asked her on this tour because everywhere that I went, I, I would hear from Hoosiers asking and being very concerned about the current state of education and how we are not fully funding edu public education at the levels that we should as a state. And she was able to speak very specifically towards those issues. And I appreciate her for that. And I know she took a lot of flack from her party on that, but she and I both agree that education is not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It's an issue about children. It's an issue about the health of a community. So on these listening tours, that was just a glimpse of the issues that we would focus on. Um, and again, I'm very intentional on listening versus me coming out laying out a, a, a plan, laying out policies. I wanted to use this information so we can build that platform based off what the people was telling us across the state. And one of the things that we'll be rolling out very soon as we look at the, the 2020 legislative session is what can we do to cap the cost or lower the cost of prescription drugs? I sit on the health committee in the Indiana Senate and there was a testimony that spoke directly to me, and the reason why I wanted to take this issue up. There were two sisters that testified in regards to them both having diabetes. 
and how the one of them can't afford, even with their insurance, the medication. And they have to ration the insulin within their household to make sure that they both have this life-saving drug. We shouldn't live in a society where that's the case. We need to address those type of issues to make sure that this, that will never happen. Um, so these are the things that came from the public, that came from the people, and that's the type of leader that I will be, uh, have always been, is someone that will listen, that have experience and implement my leadership with your vision and our collective will together to build policies that support everyday Hoosiers. Uh, Senator Melton, William Hosea, how are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? Great. So uh, I wanted to thank you for coming down and participating in our Power of the Black Vote event. And uh, during that panel discussion, you you mentioned uh, uh, some issues about the uh, school takeover uh, up in Gary. And correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what I took from that is the the policies uh, from the state helped to create that situation and then kind of stifled the efforts to to find a good resolution to it. So can can you speak to that a little bit and maybe clarify that for us? Yes. When I was sworn into office, uh, my local school corporation was faced with over $100 million of debt. Um, school buildings being closed and students leaving the district by the thousands. Um, I will be the first to admit that local decisions could have been made better over the years um, from a fiscal perspective as well as a academic perspective. However, the issues that the state failed to recognize or even acknowledge are the policies that help to contribute to that situation. And the primary reason why I share this story across the state is because I'm seeing signs of this in other communities, both in rural, urban, and suburban. Signs of schools closing, that they can't afford to have heating and cooling in their schools or the appropriate textbooks or uh, adequate transportation. These are all the signs that I've seen over the years in my very own community. So when we look at the policies that helped contribute to this, we can go back to 2008 or even 2005, when the city of Gary, where uh, when there was state law that passed where corporations can self-assess, and we eventually had where the tax burden from corporations shifted from the corporation over to property owners, homeowners forcing people out of their homes, on top of these corporations downsizing and losing and leaving jobs behind. U.S. Steel at one point had tens of thousands of jobs, and I'm sure you both know know that. Yeah. Currently yeah, right now, absolutely. there's three, about three, three to 4,000 jobs. It's still one of our number one employers. But if you think of the city of Geary that was once 120, maybe even 150,000 people, that currently has 70,000 people. So all of this plays into the overall quality of life, but also the quality of education. Because if you don't have the tax base, and that's why we have to overhaul and look at the way we fund public education, 
because we start from an inequity if we're going to base funding off of local property tax dollars because it's going to be different per community across the board, especially if you're in a more urban in a more sparse community or rule that don't have the tax base or the uh, the corporations to support or the business businesses to support. So that was in 2005, and we have 2008, 2009, where policies where the property tax caps hit into the state constitution. That was helpful for homeowners, but when we look at the effects that it had on residents. I mean, I'm sorry, municipalities and school corporations and libraries and other taxing units, they're getting less dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars being left behind for these entities to provide basic services. You look at 2009 when over $300 million was taken out of the education budget across the state. That money was never replaced and the overall education budget never replaced. My colleagues will say that we're funding education at an all-time high. I don't, I don't sign on to that. I believe that we're playing catch-up. We're catching up because we're not in, also not including the rate of inflation that takes place in our society. Other contributing factors, the proliferation of charter schools, Gary was ranked sixth in the nation at one point with the most charter school per capita. When I was in school, maybe in the late 90s, we had 15, 20,000 students in the school corporation. Now we have about four or 5,000 students. So we, we have a shrinkage in the population. Those are actual dollars per child that are that leaving parents are seeking these other opportunities because the school corporation is not able to invest and provide the quality of services. So when they have this notion of let's infuse this new model of education within charters to create a more quote-unquote competitive nature, that competitive nature turned into cannibalization. Um, as a current state senator, with 60% or more children in charters, I want them to be successful right now because my children in my district are in there. So, But the one thing I have to say we have to do better is hold them accountable. Hold them accountable and provide more transparency. Uh, so I can go on on a lot of other contributing factors, but this is not just this is solely not a, a Gary issue or a Northwest Indiana issue. This is a statewide issue. We're seeing it across the entire state where school buildings are closing because schools can't afford to keep the doors open. So the one thought I always shared as we travel the state is, show me a state's budget, and I'll show you what a state cares about or what that state's priority is. So when the governor signed a budget where we increased funding for charter schools by 10%, virtual charter schools by 9%, and voucher programs by, I believe, 5% or so, we know that 93% of all Hoosier children attend traditional public education. 
yet he signed a budget that only increased education for traditional public education for 2%. These are the issues that need to be brought out in the forefront and talked about and discussed on platforms like this for individuals to be educated and informed on issues that impact us all. Seems like it's uh, pretty obvious that the direction that they're going in with uh, funding charter schools versus public schools. But also wanted to ask, um, are, are the rural uh, areas of the state experiencing the same or similar problems with, with school closings and uh, lack of funding yes. as urban areas? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're, we're hearing the same conversations right in on on appropriations as these school corporations are coming before us asking and pleading for more dollars because there's no other local revenue that's going to help them address the issues that they have. So, yes, this is more than just an urban issue. This is also a rural issue as well because they don't have the tax base like many of our more uh, flourishing communities have. Um, So, Yes, we have to keep that at the forefront to make sure that every single person is aware of these issues. You know, in in most uh, states, um, they're usually critiqued or evaluated on how such things as um, um, the infrastructure upkeep is is maintained um, as far as road repair, bridge repair, and and the like. There's been, in my opinion, an inordinate amount of... um, uh, structural upkeep and maintenance, uh, new roads being or, or or old highways being resurfaced or repurposed, um, and to me, I and maybe maybe it's just the way things are funded. Maybe those dollars are specifically earmarked. I don't want to assume, but your your typical person li- person listening might assume that monies are being diverted to such other projects as opposed to the things that you're that you're uh, alluding to right now well i think the the enhancements of, that you may be seeing are more state state highways mm-hmm. from an infrastructure perspective i think we're doing we're getting better at helping the local communities to identify the resources to provide additional funding. Um, in 2017, legislation was passed to help from an infrastructure perspective to get these things done. But we have to look at things a little differently because of the way the world is growing and shifting from a more energy efficiency, from a more smart technology-wise. You know, even our own infrastructure should be moving in that direction where we can look at how do we put people back to work. We teach and, and educate our children to look at new and innovative and creative jobs to rebuild our communities, to build up the infrastructure from broadband to these rural areas so people can have access to the Internet to help provide better access and quality health care because it's, it's all interconnecting as well as building up our rural and urban communities at the same time that have been hit by the devastation of industry leaving. So we not looking at it from a one-dimensional perspective, but how do we look at it from a holistic and inclusive manner? 
For, for those who have just tuned in to bring it on, we have the pleasure of speaking with Indiana State Senator uh, from the 3rd District, um, Mr. Eddie Melton, who, among his, his many uh, accomplishments in politics, has also thrown his hat into uh, the, the ring to run for governor of the state of Indiana. Uh, he joins others um, who have also um, thrown their hats in. We have the incumbent who is running for re-election. We have um, Dr. Woodrow Myers, who's thrown his hat into the ring uh, to run uh, for the gubernatorial position. And just just for full transparency, we have extended to him an opportunity to come on, not today, but on, on another show. And we, we intend to uh, follow up on that. One thing I, I do appreciate what I hear coming from you, State Senator uh, Melton, is that you're inclusive. It's easy um, being a, uh, a citizen or native from Northwest Indiana. I grew up in Gary, and just like you, I, I was played athletics, uh, faith family, all the things that you hold as hallmarks for your success and, and, your, and your rise. Um, it's easy to just sort of commiserate on the status quo. It's easy. And there's nothing worse than when I return home to visit uh, to see, you know, things not necessarily being done because it's such an overwhelming burden to lift at times. Um, but I hear you also extending your your critique and observation to all parts of Indiana, which is important as, as a governor who will be sitting in a position to have to govern overall. Can you share with us... Um, what will your um, administration look like? What what new things will you incorporate in an, in a Governor Melton administration? All right, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, of, of course, inclusivity is is extremely important to me. I believe where there's diversity, there's new thoughts and there's new ways of looking at issue and complex issues uh, and addressing these things. But when we talk about those core areas that I mentioned earlier in education, in health care. And, and I don't frame it as saying traditionally we'll both say jobs. You know, you, you hear politicians say jobs, but what does that mean? And, and what does that look like? I think we have to be more specific, but, yes, also innovative when we say expanding access and opportunity to individuals. Because that can include also entrepreneurship, making capital available for individuals that have innovative and creative ideas, making sure that every university has an incubator and accelerator to make sure that those ideas and concepts will come to life, that will breathe life into local communities. That's the type of administration that we want to be more innovative and inclusive in our policymaking. But we also want to be strategic in our investments, in investing in health care, in education. We're still a state that has not fully funded pre-K. When all the data shows us that pre-K is one of the driving forces to make sure that a child is successful in their life throughout their academic career, that's something on day one that we will do to make sure that we fight to enforce that fully funding pre-K, and not just saying it for the sake of saying it, which we're doing right now through this current administration. But from a health care perspective, and I know for some folks it may not be as popular, but the legalization of medical marijuana 
is something that we have to implement. Time and time again, I have veterans, I have individuals that struggle with PTSD, I have individuals that come to me, a health committee that have uh, epilepsy, and they give us testimony and their life-saving experiences of having this medication and allowing it to help to undergird other medical issues that we have to get addressed, such as the opioid crisis. Using the revenue by the legalization of medical marijuana, allowing us to reinvest in more local initiatives, such as prevention and intervention and treatment in our opioid crisis, because this is real, is true, and is existing to this day. But we have to fund it and undergird those on a local level to address those issues. Now, I mentioned my, my father, who is a disabled veteran, earned a Purple Heart and a Silver Star. We will be an administration that's going to be very in tune and alert to what the veterans need. And we know that within the last few months, this current administration have had scandal after scandal when it comes down to providing transparency and providing uh, a clear path on how to make sure that the veterans can trust the Indiana Department of Veteran Affairs. These are the issues that we have to stay focused on, but we have to remain a type of administration that's going to provide a vision, not just hitting these, these hallmarks, but providing a vision for the future, making sure that we protect our environment and do it in a fashion where we can put people back to work in building and designing solar panels and innovative technology uh, to reduce our carbon footprint. Senator, um, I want to ask one more education-related question, and that's because I know a few uh, teachers who listen to this program. Um, You are also a strong voice and advocate on behalf of teachers and teacher salaries. So I want to ask, what is the 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 state of uh, teachers collectively in in Indiana? Yeah, we aren't having. We currently still have a teacher shortage. You know, let's just call it what it is. Individuals aren't going into the teaching profession like they once were. We have the lowest and slowest salary growth in the nation since two thousand two. Mm. Nation. So when you have neighboring states that are offering a livable wage or a higher wage uh, in teaching, we're exporting talent in that regards. So looking at ways how to incentivize and uh, increase the base salary for teachers. Now, folks would throw numbers out there. For me, I believe the starting base salary for a teacher should be a minimum of $60,000, a minimum, you know, other professions that require the same level of training, the same level of investment of time and, and, and resources, they get paid around that same wage level. We have to be intentional on showing teachers that we respect them and we value them in the work that they do. Um, I'm the only legislator that I'm aware of that offered a teacher pay increase Bill. But here's the issue that we encountered. 
when you live in a state or you operate in a state or serve in a legislature that's a one-party rule, you have 10 Democrats out of 50, or you have 40 Republicans in the, in the Senate, so 10, 40. In the House, you have 33 Democrats and 67 Republicans. They control the governor, the secretary of state, the treasurer, the auditor. This is all systematically designed because of gerrymandering. Our maps are not drawn in a fair and equitable fashion where Hoosier voices should be reflected in their leadership. So by me authoring legislation that I work very closely with teachers, teachers' unions, very closely with administrators, to say, what's the clear path to increasing teacher salaries across the state? And we draft that bill, but there was never a hearing on it. Never a hearing on it. However, there was a teacher pay commission created by the governor. Initially, that didn't have a teacher on it. <laughs> it was not inclusive in that manner. Eventually, one was added, but it was as an afterthought. So, yes, do we still have an, an issue? Do we still have a shortage of teachers that are in science and technology and math and, and other areas? Yes. But that's not the only issue I'm hearing from teachers. They're asking and they're telling us, why do we have to teach, I mean, test so much our students? Teaching to the test, the over-testing of our students, and tying it to their pay, to their salaries. So figuring out how do we ensure that students are receiving the best quality education that they can, and teachers are compensated at a level that's a livable wage, and they can provide and they can pay back student loans, and they can provide for their families. I'll tell this very, very quick story. I'm walking in the, in the halls of the Senate, and I had two teachers walk up to me. Both of them um, said, we love our jobs, but we have to work two and three jobs on top of the one that we have. And both of them, well, one of them worked uh, as a teacher, but they also drove an Uber and drove for Grubhub. That should not have to be the case. I had another teacher, and I'll end the story with this, and this is what really touched my heart. I was in my district, and I was in a community of Lake Station, and she slipped me a note. She said, this is my story. Please tell it. When I read her note, it said simply, please don't say my name, but share my story because I don't feel safe. She said, I, live, I lived with an abusive husband, and I didn't make enough money to move out. So now I'm staying with my parents. I've been teaching for 12 years, and I love this profession, and I don't want to leave it. But I almost feel forced because I can't afford to provide a safe space for my children to stay. That right there struck me to my core. And I said, we have to do something. This is not an issue where we can wait any longer because we're seeing children and teachers lose out. Well, Senator Melton, uh, and for those who just tuned in to bring it on, we have the uh, distinct pleasure uh, to have a conversation this evening with uh, 
Indiana's 3rd District State Senator Eddie Melton, and he is speaking his passion. His, he's speaking uh, his vision for a better Indiana. And, of course, he is talking about his, his campaign, his run for the highest office in the state of Indiana, and that being the governor. Uh, ship of the state of Indiana. I, I want to um, sort of take you back down memory lane, not too far now, not not too far. We'll still stay within the last three five years, but uh, and, and sort of perusing around your Facebook page, um, there's an April 28th and April 20th post that stated, "As a freshman senator, keeping the Gary schools open was the hardest fight fought, hardest fight I fought this session." Now. That there is a plan of action. Let's continue to work together to secure the future of our children. And then on um, earlier, on the 20th of April, you said that I'm pleased that the Indiana Senate approved my resolution to study and address the financial crisis that public schools are facing across the state. Schools across Indiana are at risk financially. Urban, suburban, and rural schools are facing operating deficits and outstanding debt that impacts the delivery of quality of educational services to Hoosier students. But your whole life since 2005, uh, as we read in your intro, you were instrumental in establishing and training mentoring organizations around the country. In 2015, you worked with President Barack Obama's administration in implementing My Brother's Keeper, which was an initiative designed to address persistent opportunity gaps facing boys and young men of color. And you've been recognized as a national leader in the area of youth mentoring. Talk a little bit about those things. We, we've heard your passion for education, and as demonstrated by, as a freshman, you were also complimented by not only your colleagues, but others who've been observing your uh, service to Indiana. Talk a little bit about your passion uh, a little bit earlier than that in working with President Obama and implementing the My Brother's Keeper initiative. Right. Yeah, that was a special time. A special moment. I think we all missed that administration. We all missed that president. You can say that again, <laughs> sir. <laughs> and again. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, but when he brought the My Brother's Keeper initiative to the forefront, it was right in the wake of, well, right after the shooting of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. And Leaders from across the country, we went to the White House to work together and develop strategies to bring back to communities across this country to figure out how to address those issues. And every time I would sit at the table and have these conversations, I couldn't help but to think about my own upbringing and my friends and my family members that were caught up in drugs or were caught up in violence. And it, it, it just meant a lot to me, not only as someone that had lived through these things, but also as a father. I have two boys right now. Um, and when I look at them, I see the future. I see the opportunities that they can have. But I know that there are so many other young men and children in general, boys and girls, that don't have the support system to help them stay and get on the right track. And that's what mentoring is about. Being a mentor is not being a, an authoritative figure or someone that is mandating that a child or young adult does something. A mentor is a coach, a cheerleader, a champion, someone that gives advice and push you, helps you to get 
on the right track in life. And that's what we worked on, on policies that help offer solutions in local communities like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, thank you for, for touching on that. Uh, we just didn't add it in the introduction. I wanted our listeners to hear uh, that 2017 wasn't the first time you had a desire to help and to give back this you've had history and wanting to improve the lot of many lives and um for that for that i know there are a lot of citizens out there that appreciate that you mentioned at the top of the hour and i did not want to forget this but you said you just arrived back from south carolina uh you were at the 2020 bipartisan justice center's 2019 second step presidential justice reform and uh, there were several presidential candidates uh, who, who who had assembled for a forum discussion. This took place October 25th through the 27th. It was hosted at Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, but we had a host of uh, candidates for the highest office of the land who were there. You also had the opportunity uh, you, to be in an interview with Mayor Pete, uh, Pete Buttigieg, who joined you to have a conversation on criminal justice reform. And I want to to save time for that. We have about, oh, about eight, nine minutes, depending on uh, my engineer will per- permit us to go hot. Uh, she, she, she's kind to us. But uh, take, take some time and talk about uh, that conversation, that experience that, that, that you just uh, partook in. Yes, you know, I appreciate that. You know, uh, it was an honor to be able to share the stage with the majority of all of the presidential Democratic candidates, uh, to meet with them, to talk with them uh, personally, but also to hear their thoughts and perspectives on an issue that matters not only to the black community, but to all communities when we talk about criminal justice reform. We know the nation has, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world, uh, and the issues that we need to do to address systemic, systemically, uh, this issue is something that we have to do a better job. So, uh, I had a chance to sit and interview Mayor Pete, you know, whom I'm extremely excited for to see his uh, track uh, in the presidential field that he's continued to climb. Up, uh, and we had a very hard-to-heart conversation, and. One of the very first questions I asked him about was a situation that occurred in South Vietnam where a black man, uh, Eric Logan, lost his life uh, at the hands of an officer. And I, and I wanted the mayor to share, as mayor of the city, what he learned from this experience and as president, uh, how would he ensure that he works to make sure that this doesn't happen ever again? Because we see it far too often, and we hear about it far too often. Uh, so he was able to share his thoughts and perspectives, not only on what he learned, but what he would do and implement policies, as many of the other candidates did as well. Um, but I, what I was hoping that all of them addressed, and I think m- most of them did, is talk about the school-to-prison pipeline system. You know, since we've talked about education on, on, on this call, uh, we know there's a disproportionate amount of students that are expelled from school, uh, in a lot of cases, because it's a difficult, uh, well, it's, I was just say nationally, um, the way students are disciplined leads to this systemic problem in terms of the school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, 
so it was not only a rewarding experience to be there, to be a part of that discussion, uh, but to be a part of a discussion that adds a significant amount of value to transforming a lot of lives. You know, how do we address the reintegration of individuals that's leaving prisons and having them prepare to integrate back into society? This is something I talk about on my platform that we're going to be rolling out very soon is, is making sure that, and this is also a bill that I had, to make the dollars or resources available for those leaving prison to access grants and scholarships for college so they can receive their degree and come out ready and prepared. So this is a variety of topics uh, that we can talk about from mass incarceration to police and community relations and, and so many other issues because I know it, it strikes home for a lot of our communities. I'd like to take a second for uh, for William to share with me, share with you rather, what he shared with me when we first came on the air as far as what was going on here in our city today with a gathering of individuals. Well, um, right now as we speak, there is a, uh, a rally down at City Hall in honor of uh, Tatiana Jefferson, who was murdered by a police officer down in Fort Worth, as well as uh, the uh, several other black women over the past few years who lost their lives at the hands of police. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, down outside of City Hall right now, started at 6 o'clock. They're probably still down there. But do, do you have any thoughts? Uh, I, I know this is getting away from what we've been talking about, but but do you have any thoughts on the situation that happened down in Fort Worth? Yeah. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. When I think about my mother, my sister, my wife, my daughters, and I think about a woman that was in her own home with her own family, enjoying themselves, and moments later, her life is lost. I think this speaks at the core of what we must do as a nation to address these issues, be it implicit bias, uh, be it even racism. We have to have these tough conversations. I think we were starting to have that at the forum I was at in Bloomington. I, I wish we had a little bit more time. But we have to talk about these tough issues because we're talking about the lives of people and communities. So my heart continues to go out. And as elected officials, we can always offer our thoughts and our prayers. But it's time for us to move in a different direction and ensure that we put the practices and policies in place so issues like that won't happen again. You know, over the last few days, we said goodbye to uh, a couple of champions of um, uh, civil rights and social justice, uh, Elijah Cummings and, and then John Conyers, uh, just the other day. Uh, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you before we sort of concluded this uh, conversation is, you know, who is your political hero who you maybe have tried to model yourself after? Uh, it could be someone in politics or maybe someone. Um, uh, you spoke highly of your father a number of times, so I know there, there are elements of, of his 
of, of his rearing that have have made you the person you are. But um, tell us uh, any reflections on uh, uh, the Honorable Elijah Cummings and the Honorable John Conyers. Yes, you know I, I, when I look at those giants, those political giants, I don't look at it from a political perspective, but just the the moral and integrity and the character that they brought to our lives in certain instances. Um, when you you ask me who would I look at as kind of like a, a mentor figure, I'm the person. I, I don't have one person that I would hold as that one political figure. I think there are many characteristics and many leadership traits that I, I look at a, a lot of folks throughout time. Mm-hmm. Um, of, of course, President Obama is one of those individuals. Mm-hmm. But I will also have to say Robert F. Kennedy mm-hmm. in, in terms of I admire how he was able to be willing to learn and adjust his mindset in terms of shifting from uh, not agreeing with a certain community or or looking at a certain community a particular way, but when he humbled himself and when he went to the rule to the south and seen the struggles of the poor of uh, black communities, and he changed and shifted the way he addressed these issues and become more of an advocate. I admire that about him during a time that was extremely dangerous and not popular to do so when we talk about race relations. Um, so there are many individuals, but off top, I would say those in, those two uh, come to my mind. Uh, of course, there are many folks locally uh, within our own community that serve in that capacity for me. Uh, and I, I want to I want to make sure I, I share this with your audience and with you all. Myself looking to run for governor is not about me. It's about us. It's a collective. Because I'm seeing, hearing, and have experienced these issues and ills that people are still struggling with today. And I know we can do better. I know that we can address these issues with the right leadership and with vision and not dancing around them and hoping that uh, the majority of folks will overlook. So I just simply have a a heart and desire to serve the people. That's the way I was raised. That's the way my mother raised me. And I will continue to be that way. Well, Senator Melton, uh, we'll let that be the last word as we have so many times when we interview people, uh, we run out of time. I I wouldn't want to take this opportunity. I do want to take this opportunity to ask you to come back on again um, as we get closer to uh, the election. I know that uh, your day-to-day activities are going to get lengthier and and you'll be more busy. But if you can afford us some time as you did today, we would definitely appreciate that. Yeah, maybe we can get Governor Melton back on, too. Yeah, we'll, we'll get Governor Melton back on <laughs> uh, also. But our, our thanks to Indiana State Senator Eddie Melton for joining us this evening to introduce and acquaint himself to our listening audience and for sharing his vision on how he intends to lead Indiana 
as its next governor. You can learn more about his campaign at eddymelton.com. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would love to hear what they are. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. Our address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. It's time now to give you the latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting the black community. For bringing on, I'm Clarence Boone. I'm William Hosea. We have a, a lot of stories to sort of share with you, but again, time is sort of a challenge. But we'll start with those that we feel are um, of, of major importance. If you've been not hiding under a rock, you know that there was a successful campaign over the weekend to remove a terrorist, uh, the leader of ISIS, um, from his position. And um, it was a successful uh, mission. We we don't take anything away from the end result. Uh, but there were some concerns about just the, the process um, uh, that, that was uh, taken, um, undertaken to, to get that done. House Foreign Affairs Chairman, uh, over Trump's refusal to tell Democrats about Baghdadi's raid, they find it problematic and insulting. The list of Democratic leaders in Congress upset over being left out of prior notification of the daring raid that led to the death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi keeps growing. Representative Elliot Engel, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, praised the special operations team and intelligence officials involved in the raid, as well as mourned for Americans who were killed by ISIS. He then went after President Donald Trump in a statement. This morning, Trump thanked Russia and Syria for their support with the al-Baghdadi operation. Yet these two countries have been among the most destabilizing to the region, creating the conditions that gave rise to extremism and chaos. Engel, one of the congressional leaders overseeing the House impeachment inquiry of Trump, called the president's Syria strategy disastrous and said it would not ensure the next leader of the terror group does not threaten the United States or its allies. He then said the implication by the president that Democrats would leak information about the raid was insulting. Uh, Here's a quote. Finally, I am extremely troubled. Trump notified only Republicans, but did not see fit to inform me or any congressional Democrats of the operation. His implication that Speaker Pelosi, the elected representative third in line for the presidency, could not be trusted with sensitive information is tremendously problematic and insulting and further politicizes foreign policy, especially when Trump has shown himself to be an untrustworthy guardian of our national security and sensitive intelligence information. And uh, let's not forget, not only did he not notify any Democratic leaders uh, ahead of time, but he no- he gave Russia advance notice. He gave day. Russia advance notice. Well, over our own elected uh, representatives. And, and the comparison was there. Um, and, and it was first subtle, and I think it's been more direct, as, as he's, he's been on the stump stage talking about his, his latest... Uh, champion uh, exploit, whatever, but um, he, he wanted to draw this comparison all first veiled, but now a little bit more direct to President Obama's uh, handling of the, I um, uh, almost forgot his name, just that quick. Bin Laden. Bin Laden. Thank you, William. Uh, Bin Laden. But 
there's no comparison. Now, so it goes something like this. We both killed terrorists, but I killed him better. Yeah, and one went out whimpering like a dog, <laughs> huddled in a cave. Anyhow, back to uh, Chicago. It's really about me. Chicago's top cop says of decision to opt out of Trump's upcoming speech. Rosemary Sabal of the Chicago, of the Chicago Tribune states that Describing it as a personal choice, Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson stood firm on his decision to opt out of a speech President Donald Trump will be delivering in Chicago next week at the International Association of Chiefs of Police. It just doesn't line up with our city's core values, along with my personal values, Johnson told reporters as he stood at a podium next to two other police officials following the major cities chiefs association conference at McCormick place on Saturday afternoon. <clears throat> Johnson clarified that other police officers were given the green light to attend the speech also held at McCormick place. If they want, it's not about the department. Johnson said it's really about me and the way I feel about the core values of this city. While he would not elaborate on what he and mayor Lori Lightfoot discussed about skipping the event, he said the decision also involved trust, which he said the police department needs, especially in the city's immigrant communities, some of which are under siege by policies of the Trump administration. We are nothing without the trust of the people of the city, Johnson said. We want the immigrant communities to trust the police department. We don't need them to fear us and flee us. Along with that, uh, you know, Mayor Lightfoot refused to meet with I, President Trump. I, I heard yeah. Um, and, and that is a message um, which hopefully will get registered with our commander-in-chief. Um, we talked a little bit earlier with uh, Senator Melton about U.S. Representative John Conyers. Uh, he was a civil rights icon and former dean of Congress. He died at the age of 90. And uh, there's a very extensive article on him, of course, from his uh, district in Detroit, but from the Detroit from the Detroit Free Press, we read that former U.S. Representative John Conyers, a civil rights icon who during five decades in Congress co-founded the Congressional Black Caucus and pushed to establish a national holiday to honor the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., died this Sunday of natural causes at the age of 90. His death comes after a long and illustrious career that spanned more than 50 years and 27 terms in office, but wow. ended, in, ended in 2018 with a sudden resignation amid claims of sexual harassment and verbal abuse of employees and misuse of taxpayer funds to cover up these claims. Conyers' tenure was a remarkable 53-year run during which the lawmaker, the son of a well-known labor lawyer in Detroit, compiled a near-record legacy of civil rights activism, longevity, and advocacy for the poor and underprivileged. He died with the sixth longest tenure in congressional history. For a long time, he was black America's congressman, said Sam Riddle, a longtime family friend and consultant to the Conyers family, who confirmed the death Sunday on the streets of Detroit. He'll be mourned. Conyers may not have had many bills that carried his name. Only 26 of the 712 bills he introduced became law according to the Library of Congress, but he fought for issues of civil rights and social justice, including seeking reparations for the descendants of African-American slaves, modifying the mandatory sentences for those convicted of nonviolent drug crimes, defending assaults on the Voting Rights Act, reforming laws that put juvenile offenders in prison for life, 
and calling for investigations into police brutality of African-American men. Conyers resigned in early December 2017 after an article on BuzzFeed.com detailed a secret settlement of more than 27000 with a former staffer who accused him of making sexual advances toward her and paying her out of funds from his taxpayer-supported office. And I, I will also state that he also <coughs> presented here at Indiana University uh, in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and just his demeanor was, and his presentation, the content of his presentation was memorable. And some may say, well, he fell from grace, but uh, I've also heard many times that if you take the full sum total of a man's life and weigh that out against an indiscretion here and there, uh, you get a better picture. So that's something for us all to consider, but we do appreciate all the major contributions he made, um, and we let we let history and we let uh, uh, just the court system handle the rest. And that was a look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues. Please send your comments to bring it on at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. You're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org. Our thanks to Indiana State Senator Eddie Melton for joining us this evening to introduce himself to our listening audience and for sharing his vision on how he intends to lead Indiana as its next governor. You can learn more about his campaign at eddiemelton.com. Our show's producer is the gentleman sitting to my left, Mr. Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department. Tonight's board engineer is Chantal LaFontante. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. Tune in next Monday. Are you ready? November the 4th. Wow. We are now in the, going into November. It's also the day before elections. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we might get a little bit of pre-election coverage next week. Uh, we come on at 6 p.m. here on this station, WFHB. And uh, tune in next week for another exciting edition of Bring It On here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.